Goodness, goodness, goodness. I'm so glad that she sang that song. I want to stay close to you. It's really that simple. It's that simple. I want to stay close to you. So I have a little bit of a uh, an apology to make. Um, not like I've done something terrible, awful. Everybody just jumps to the worst conclusion. I have an apology to make. You're like... <gasps> No, um, so last week I had started and said I was going to preach a two-part series on drawing near to the Lord, and I kind of was being led by the Spirit in another direction, and me and my human nature having an outline in front of me with a little bit of notes on there was like, no, we're going to pull it back in. You know, the Spirit's leading over here, and I'm like, that's great. You're doing all this awesome stuff. Let's pull it back right here to this outline. And so I tried to force in the end of an outline, and it probably was a little bit confusing, and I shouldn't have done that. So I have since prayed and repented and said, God, you start leading. I'm just going to follow. So today, no notes. No outline, because I feel like God's leading in a direction, and I have no idea where that's at. I have a verse. A verse. One verse. That's it. So it's going to be in Matthew chapter 3, but before we go there, I just want to talk about where God was leading last Sunday, what was going on. I preached, and I started with the message of Mary and Martha, and a lot of you guys know that story. If you were here last week, of course you know that story. If not, it's simple. Jesus and his disciples come to Mary and Martha's house to have a meal, and the system and the culture that they were involved in, Mary and Martha were supposed to be in the kitchen getting the dinner ready or the lunch ready and going about doing all the work while the men rested and washed their feet in preparation for the meal. That was the system. And Martha was engaged in doing all of the stuff, working super hard to make sure everything was right, and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha, in her frustration, calls out to the Lord and says, Master, do you not care that she doesn't help me? Tell her to help me. And then Jesus gives her that soft rebuke of, you know, you're worried about many things. You're anxious about a lot of stuff. Mary has chosen the better part, the good part. This one thing that's needful is what Mary has chosen. And so we did this whole message and the Lord started leading in this rep this road of getting out of our system because we as people have the unbelievable ability to turn everything into a law. We take any instruction that we get, anything that works one time, and I'll give you an example. I've been doing a lot of study on revival, actually trying to write a book on revival. and It's simply revival and Christianity should be the same thing. That's the whole premise of the book. And in doing this study, I have found that over and over and over again, people will find something that works in one situation, one time, and they'll make it a standard system and say, if you want revival, this is what you got to do. For example, Jonathan Edwards in one of the Great Awakenings, he was a staunch Calvinist, and he preached that anything outside of God's election was a heresy that was going to destroy the church. That was one of the main premises for that awakening. And you have people to this day that will say that the reason we're not in a revival or in a continued state of awakening is because we believe in free will. That's silly that that's what we have reduced that to. We've reduced what worked one time. We had a bunch of unrepentant people, so he preached the absolute sovereignty of God, and it put the fear of God in them, and they repented to a sovereign Lord. Then you have Charles Finney with the next go-round who was so far to the opposite spectrum and he said that revival is just a system of supernatural heights of emotion 
awakenings inside of an individual that gets their emotions riled up and then we have a revival birthed out of that. And then he wrote a book on the lectures of revival, which is actually pretty good, but it was turned into a system. So you've got two things at the complete opposite end of each spectrum and they're saying this is what works. This is the law. This is the standard. If you want revival, then you have to follow these and it's impossible to follow both of them because they contradict each other. What I'm saying is in the Christian realm, Somebody will go into a city and they'll put forth a couple outreach events and it'll cause their church to go to 500 to 1,000 people. And then they'll publish a book and they'll host a series of seminars and they'll say, this is the standard, this is the system, you have to do this to grow your church. Church growth, church health seminars are all over the place because we as people will turn anything into a system. We'll turn anything into a law and then we allow that system or that law to become an idol in our lives and we take God completely out of the equation. And we say it's our system that's done it. It's our works that's done it. It's our law that's done it. And so I felt like last Sunday that the Lord was really pressing this. If we really want to draw near, then we have to kind of get out of our system a little bit. We have to kind of get out. And it's not saying, oh, we just completely go all over the place and ignore the instructions in the Bible. No, it's saying that we have to kind of get out of this mindset of we're working to attain some kind of favor with God, that we're working to earn His love. Because that's continually what we come back to as people. We continually say, I'm saved by grace, but then somebody in the church slips up and you're like, they're condemned to going to hell. I mean, that's what we do as Christians. Somebody slips up Somebody, for example, let's say we have somebody that comes to church and they get saved and they get delivered. We've actually prayed with several people throughout the course of our ministry. Let's say for this example that it's an alcoholic. It's somebody that's just completely sold away everything that they own to feed this addiction of alcoholism. And they come in here and they get saved and they get delivered from that. And they're delivered and they're a good Christian by every quote-unquote measure that we could apply to good. They come to church, they give, they serve, they labor, they learn, they study the Word, and then six months down the road, one of their old friends runs into them, they go out for a bite to eat to kind of, they, they go out with good intentions, they want to share the gospel, but then they smell alcohol, and anyone that knows anything about addiction, you smell alcohol, and it turns your stomach because it it's that powerful of a hold and they slip up and they get drunk and then they come back in church and somebody in the church has found out about it and through the grapevine of gossip the whole church knows about it it's like everybody's waiting to meet them out in the parking lot with a stone in their hand ready to strike them dead because they fell succumbed to a sin again listen I am all for holiness and righteousness but we as Christians, cannot become so legalistic, so bent on our system of good works that we allow the very system that's set up, the very faith that we have in us that's supposed to be reaching those people that are hurting, that are broken, that are struggling, and we allow that system to condemn the people it's supposed to be helping. See, when God chose the Jewish people, the Israelites, He chose them to be a nation of priests and prophets to proclaim the sovereign God to the world. And they held it in and claimed a monopoly on God and condemned everybody else for being ungodly. 
And then it spread over to the Gentiles and you had Pentecost and the birth and the church coming on the scene and they went out and had revival and they shared it with the known world. They were achieving the Great Commission. But in our modern, quote-unquote, post-Christian era, we have done the same thing that the Jews were guilty of in the first place. God has given Himself to us, given us His name, and we have taken that all the gifts that He's given us that's revealed in the Word of God, and we've forced it back into a system. We've forced it back into a box, and we are saying, the church, we have a monopoly on God. Therefore, everyone else is going to hell. Which, there's truth to that. But because we are holding it in, they have no idea that they're going to hell. Because we've lost the love that compels us to fulfill the Great Commission. The point that I feel like the Lord is laboring on this is in order for us to really fulfill the Great Commission, we have to be compelled by love. But in order for us to be compelled by love, we have to come into contact with that love because we can't create love in ourselves. We can only reflect the love that's the love of God. God is, is love. The Bible literally says God is love. So for us, in order for us to have love, we have to have God. In order for us to have God, we have to draw near to Him and we have to be Mary who sits at the feet of Jesus and chooses the good part and says, I know that there's things that need to be done. I know that the works need to be done, but instead of us working to try to earn the praise of the Lord, we should sit at His feet and receive from the Lord so then we have the power to do the works in the first place. See, Martha's whole problem, and what we talked about last week, her whole problem wasn't the fact she was doing anything wrong. She was doing right according to her system. Martha's problem was that she had this emptiness inside of her and she was looking for God, Jesus, to praise her and say, Martha, you're doing such a good job. I wish Mary was doing half of what you were doing. That's what she wanted. That's why she pointed out Mary. She was probably, and I, being close to Thanksgiving, I made this illustration last week. You cannot compete with a woman of the house when she's preparing for Thanksgiving. You can't do it. You hide in a cabinet somewhere because they will work you under the table. I said that last week and I say it this week because it's so true. I would rather stub my toe ten times in a row than try to get in the kitchen. Faith and her dad and her stepmother are coming down for Thanksgiving. Her stepmother is Filipino, which they can work. They're a whole different level of work. Faith and her are going to make a Thanksgiving meal. You could not drag me into that kitchen and get in their way. Couldn't do it. So I have no doubt in my mind that Martha was getting everything done. She was getting all of the work done. She did not need the help. Not saying that her having help would have been bad, but she did not need the help. She had something that was irking her on the inside because she was working for something, but her system was failing her. Likewise, we preach that whole series on the requirements of Christianity, things that we do to show forth the faith that we say that we have. But if that system is all we got, then we're losing it. We're missing it. If we just have the works and we don't have the faith, then we've lost it. We've missed it. But if we have the contact with Christ, if we have that reception from Him, if we can draw close to Christ, then will receive the goodness of His presence and the works will be automatic. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. 
You don't see trees, I've said this a hundred times, you don't see an apple tree out there straining and grunting and flexing its limbs trying to bear an apple. It just happens because it's an apple tree. It's in the right soil, it's got sun, it's got rain, it bears apples because that's what it's designed to do. If we are in Christ, we are recreated, a new creation, and we, because we're planted in the body and we're watered by the Spirit, receiving the light of His Word, we will naturally bear the fruit of the Spirit because we are in Christ. It won't be an effort. It won't be a strain. It should be automatic. But if you keep trying to work and labor to have these things without the contact with Christ, without drawing near to His presence, without going into the veil, if you keep trying to force these things, it's going to kill you. I know because when I first started out as a Christian, I literally seen all the things that I have to do or the Bible says that I should do. And I made it a point to do all of these. And the Bible calls that will worship. Meaning that you're worshiping your will. You're worshiping your works. You're worshiping your effort. You're worshiping your ability to accomplish these things because you're trying to abide in things like touch not, taste not, handle not. Do this, don't do that. If we turn what should happen automatically for Christians into a standard of works that have to be met, then we're missing it. It's not taking Christianity and taking this and saying, okay, here's the do's and the don'ts. Here's the system. Now, if I can fulfill the system, then that means I have the contact. No, it's we're getting the contact and therefore we fulfill the system. That's the whole point. And that's what I felt like so strong last week that I just needed to keep emphasizing and emphasizing. And because I'm human and because I had a system on a piece of paper that said this is the message I needed to preach, I ignored it and I went back to my system and I violated the very thing I was trying to preach. That's why I felt like I needed to apologize because I had an outline, I had a system set up, I knew what points I wanted to preach and so I ignored the fact that the Spirit was pushing like break out of the system. Remember Mary, later on she goes and she takes the most expensive thing she has, the alabaster box of ointment and she goes and Jesus is sitting in a Pharisee's house. Simon, who was formerly a leper, and she goes and she goes straight to Jesus' feet she doesn't say a word. She breaks open the box, destroys the alabaster box of ointment that she has, pours the most precious belonging that she has available to her on his feet, and weeping with tears, washes his feet with her hair. Come on, ladies. How much money do ladies spend generally on getting their hair fixed? A lot. I see some of y'all's hair. It's pretty. I'm betting some dollars were poured into that. What I'm saying, could you imagine a man, because Jesus was truly man, who walked, and they didn't have indoor plumbing, they didn't have an active working sewage system like what we know today, they didn't have cars, so you had horses and donkeys and other things going down the street, and you know how horses and donkeys are, they don't say this patch of field over here is where I do my business. No they straight let it out wherever they're at. That's why you got in those parades, you got somebody following along with a pan and a shovel because they just do their business where they're at. So this is what's going on in the street. And the men of that day either walked with barefoot or with sandals. So you can imagine the things that were on his feet. Dirt, feces, urine. And that's what he had on his feet. 
And she comes in, doesn't say a word, doesn't ask for any praise whatsoever, simply gets down, realizing who he is, breaks open her most precious material belonging, gives all of her material wealth, all of her dignity and reputation, which she didn't have much because she was that kind of lady. And she sacrifices everything just for a moment of worship. And the leper, former leper, the Pharisee, says, do you know who she is? If you were really a prophet or a man sent from God, you would not allow this to happen because our system says that this woman should not be coming into contact with you and someone of your status. So even the Pharisee was looking for Jesus to be forced into his system. And Jesus says, I came into your house. You didn't offer me anything. You showed me no sign of reverence or respect. And yet she comes in and she gives everything. I'm going to tell you right now, her story, wherever the good news of the gospel is preached, her story will go along with it. Her moment of worship, her moment of sacrifice. So here's the contrast. We can have our system and look pretty to the people that are around us and look like we are something, like I'm a highfalutin Christian, and have our tuxedos and our fancy hairdos and our completely dead inside souls, we can be what we called last week a whited sepulcher, a pretty grave with dead inside. Or we could be a white sepulcher with gold inside, with the divine presence of God inside. See, she may have looked rough on the outside. I'm sure her hair looked a mess after that. And if she had makeup on, because they did have some forms of makeup in that day, it was smeared from the tears. I'm sure she didn't have the prettiest clothes on. She probably looked she probably looked a mess. But I guarantee you, she walked away with something more than any outward appearance could ever show. Same with Moses when he went up on the mount. Moses experienced God in such a way that he had to put a veil over his face because his face shone so bright that people couldn't even take it. They said, cover it up. And it says to this day, those people, the Israelites, put a veil over their heart so that they won't let the presence of the light of God in. Back then, they had to put a veil over Moses' face so that they wouldn't hear or see the glory of God reflected off of Moses. Now they put a veil over their heart. And the same thing is true in our day. We want our appearances. We want to look like we're a healthy church. We want to look like we're a good church. We want to look like we've got it all together. We want to sound like we've got it all together. That's why we have our fancy notes and our fancy outlines so that I don't get up here and preach and make a fool of myself. I left my notes in the office and told God while faith was worshiping, God, i got one verse. If I get up here and make a fool of myself, it's your fault. Because it is. Because God's asking us to do something that stretches us. He's asking us to do something that makes us a little bit undignified. Paul says it this way. He says, if I'm composed, it's for your sake. But if I become a little bit undignified, if I become a little bit outside the norm, a little bit out of my mind, it's for God. And I'm just asking, let's just get a little bit outside our system. I'm not saying that we go and sin. That's not what I'm saying at all, so don't misunderstand that. If you're truly drawn close to Christ, sin won't even be an option. Sin will disgust you. And you don't have to worry about, well, this is sin, this is not sin, this is sin, this is not sin, to create you a checklist. The Spirit will let you know. 
This is about getting that veil off our hearts. Stop worrying about appearances. I've had this saying, and I've, I've probably said it to Faith so many times that she's probably sick of hearing it, but you guys are going to get sick of hearing it because I'm going to say it over and over and over again. We want, if we could have anything, anything of you as an individual, not talking about being disciples that make disciples that make disciples or being a church that produces other churches or growing or having the presence of God drop, fall in this place. All that is wonderful. If I could have anything of you as an individual, you specifically, each and every one of you, it's this, that you act like a Christian, that you become authentic. And what I mean by that is not that you fulfill the outward checklist of this is what a Christian's supposed to be according to the standard of our society or according to the lens that our society has framed around the word Christian. Like a Christian looks like this. No, I'm saying that you act like a Christian as in Christian is little Christ. You look at what Christ did. That's why in that paper that I gave you guys on how to study the word, read with intent. The intent to see Christ, how He talks, how He preaches, how He prays, when He prays, why He prays, where He prays, how He handles persecution, how He handles all these negative situations, how He reacts when people are trying to kill Him, how He never points at Himself, and He always points at God. Even though everything revolves around Him, He still humbled Himself and pointed at God. The rich young ruler comes to Christ and he says, Good master, how do I inherit eternal life? And Christ responds this way. He says, Why do you call me good? There is none good but the Father. And you know, this statement always perplexed me. Christ is the very definition of good. Why would he say that? He does not say, Why do you call me good? I'm not good. He says, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Meaning that not that Christ isn't good, but He's saying you got your attention on people, on systems, because you're calling me good because I'm a Pharisee or because I'm a religious leader. Call Him good. Call God good. Does that make sense? His perspective was on people. Even though Christ was good, His perspective was on good master, like paying a compliment to a teacher when God was, Jesus was just saying, look, pay your compliments to God. Pay your compliments to God. And then later it would be revealed that Christ is in fact God. But we get our system to where we want to suck up to the people that can do something for us. See, the rich young ruler, when he came to Christ and he said that statement, Christ knew what was following. He was wanting to know what he could do to become good in of himself, what he could do to earn something by the system. He was wanting to know how he could earn eternal life. That's why when Christ says, you know the law, and he gave him the law, he said, oh, I do all of these. I do every one of these. I fulfill the law, which he obviously did not because no one can fulfill the law except Christ. But he was saying, I do it. I've got good works. And Christ says, do this then. Go and show everything that you have and follow me. And the rich young ruler walked away Distraught because he had he had he was rich he had many possessions, and see it may not be financial possessions that are holding you, but the whole premise of what we're going is the fact that 
there's something in every single one of us that hinders the presence from God of God from taking over. See, when we talk about being filled with the Spirit and receiving more filling of the Spirit, it's not a quantitative, like I've got the Spirit, now God's going to baptize me or fill me with the Spirit, I'm going to get more of the Spirit of God. No, it's a qualitative, and it's actually how much of you does the Spirit have. For example, you are filled with the Spirit on your moment of conversion when you get saved. And then after that, you have the ability to be quote-unquote filled with the Spirit, meaning you get more of the Spirit in you, but that's not really what it's saying. What it's saying is you surrender more of yourself to the Spirit and it has more control over you. So it has the ability to do a greater work in you because you've surrendered more of yourself to the Spirit. It's not about you getting more of God, more of God, more of God. It's about God getting more of you, more of you, more of you, and you become aware to how much of God is truly available in you if you just offer yourself to Him. So with all that being said, going to the verse, it's very simple. It's Matthew chapter 3, and it's verse 3. For this is He who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, this is in reference to John the Baptist, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and here's the whole kit and caboodle, this is the only thing that I receive, prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight. Prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight. John the Baptist was not telling the people then, and I'm not telling you now, that you need to go out and get a bulldozer and make a road in the natural so that Jesus can come to your house. I'm not saying that you need to do some dirt work. I'm saying that you need to do some work in your heart to prepare the way of the Lord so that the Lord has a greater, a greater ability to ascertain your heart, if that makes sense. That it's not about you going and doing some field work so that it, your house looks good or that there's roads to your house or roads to where you're at, but it's rather that you do some inward reflection and you start making some preparations for the Spirit of God to take hold of who you are. That's all this is. So when faith is singing, I want to stay close to you, it's really that simple. This whole thing is really that simple. It really is simple. Paul says that I don't want you to be confounded or I don't want you to stumble at the simplicity that is in Christ. This whole thing is not hard. It is not a list of 613 rules that you have to follow in order to be a Christian. It's a relationship with Christ and having an experience with the Most High God so that He can do a work in you because it's all about what He has already done. We keep thinking about I should or I could, or I need to. And that has its place. But true Christianity is twofold. Revelation and response. We receive the revelation of what God has done and who Christ is, and then we respond accordingly. God has seen that man has fallen. God has seen that man cannot earn salvation. God has seen that it is impossible for man. That's why when Peter asked Jesus what must men do to be saved, he says, for with man it is impossible. With God all things are possible. Because with man there is no way. Paul says if righteousness can come by the law, then Christ died in vain. There's no way. God's seen that. Therefore, even before the fall happened, He had already, before the foundation of the world, slain Christ. That's why Revelation says He's the Lamb slain before the foundation 
creation of the world because God had already predetermined in His mind that when man fell, Christ would come as the atoning sacrifice, as the substitution for our sins. God seen that it was impossible. God provided the way our response is to obey and surrender to God. God does a work in our heart. He creates us a new creature in Christ Jesus. Our response is that we live like a new creature in Christ Jesus. We become Christians by the work of the Spirit in us. Our response is to act like a Christian. Does that make sense? We're filled with the Spirit. Our response is to surrender to the Spirit and allow Him to have way in our life. God says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's revelation, response. But we have turned it into a system saying this is what Christianity is. This is how we become Christians. This is what we do. And therefore, we have forgotten what Christ has done. On the cross, He said it is finished. Not it's partly done, now you go and you do the last 10%. No, it is finished. It's the work of God in us that enables us to do the things that He's called us to do and the things that He empowers us to do, and the things that He will accomplish through us. God has done a work before you so that He can do a work to you, so that He can do a work in you, so that He can do a work through you, so that He can accomplish a work around you. We keep praying, God, send revival. God, send revival. Well, I continually feel this urging in my spirit that God will send revival because He's already done it. Revival is inside every single born-again believer because every single born-again believer is supposed to have the spirit of life in them, which is the spirit of Jesus Christ. Or put it this way, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in every born-again believer. So if we would act like Christians and aim for that authentic position in Christ, aim for authenticity, act like a Christian, aim for authenticity. If we would do that, then I guarantee you God would pour His Spirit out on all flesh. Why? Because He said that He would. It says, my mind just went blank. God said, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my face, then I will heal their lands. Jesus said at the marriage in Cana, He said, go fill water pots. Six water pots. He didn't even say what He was going to do. They filled the six water pots and He turned the water to wine. There's always a part that we have to play. Our obedience is required. But our obedience is not the miraculous. We obey in the natural according to our abilities based on the miraculous work that was done beforehand and then the miraculous work will follow. We cannot save ourselves. Men don't even desire God. It has to be a work of the Spirit for a man to even desire God. It says no one desired God at any time. And there's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Over and over and over again, you find that men are entirely and completely depraved. And when I say men, I'm saying mankind, men and women in general. All people of all time are entirely depraved. It requires a work of the Spirit churning inside of an individual for them to even come to the place of wanting to repent. And then when they repent, it requires the Spirit coming in and reviving them. It's, there's nothing in this that we can do. All we can do is say, Yes, Lord, have your way. But once that happens, once the miraculous work in us is accomplished, then we have the ability to prepare the way so that the Spirit can have all of us. 
So the challenge is this. What in your life is preventing God or the Spirit of God from taking control of all of you and fully, for lack of a better word, fully possessing you? That's the whole point. If you want to see great things in the kingdom of God, it has to be a complete surrender. Christ didn't die a partial sacrifice. We can't give a partial surrender. So what is it in your life that's preventing you from fully surrendering to God and allowing a full work of God to be done in your life? There's a lot of things that you can have and still be void of the presence of God. One of my favorite scriptures is in Exodus. And they're out of Egypt already. God has already done miraculous things, already the ten plagues on Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, supplied manna from heaven, all of this wonderful stuff. And he's so sick of the complaining and the murmuring of the children of Israel. He tells Moses, he says, he says, you go ahead, you take this people and you go into the promised land and I will send my angel in front of you to prepare the way so that you'll inhabit the whole promised land. You won't be beaten. You won't be killed off. You can go. You can have it. But my presence, the presence of God, isn't going with you. He said you can have the promise, but you're not getting the presence. And Moses cries out and he says, hang on a second. Putting it in my own layman's terms. He says, hang on a second. He says, if your presence doesn't go, I ain't going and he says, if your presence isn't staying, I'm not staying. Because wherever your presence is at, that's where I want to be. And for us, we have this ability right now to say, wherever you're at, God, whatever you're doing, that's what I want to be doing. If you're going to be in this church, that's where I want to be. If you're going to be out there in the community evangelizing, that's where I want to be. If you're leading me to go to Timbuktu in the mission field, that's where I want to go. That's what I want to do. Wherever you go, that's where I'm going. Wherever you stay, that's where I'm staying. I don't want to be anywhere that you're not. Wherever you're at, that's what I want. I want your presence, nothing else. I've said this time and time again. Christianity is Jesus Christ plus or minus nothing. If we want to be Christians, we have to have contact with Christ. It, it's all in Him. It's all inclusive. Christ is everything. He's the fountain of wisdom and knowledge. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that we could ask is centered upon Jesus Christ. He says, all power and authority is given unto me. Therefore, I tell you to go and make disciples of all nations. Christ Jesus is the focus. So here's the sum total. And I know this has been all over the place because I have no notes. I have no system to follow. Just because trying to emphasize, we don't have to have a system. It's this, the point. Act like a Christian. Aim for authenticity. And draw near to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Is that so complicated? Because we have made it so complicated. There's a million self-help, self-help books out there. There's a million books labeled things like mere Christianity or how-to books on how to be a Christian when really we've got the one and only how-to book right here. That's why in that bulletin every single week I put, this is what we're reading this week. I don't know if you guys have been following that. I don't care if you're following that reading plan. But you need to be in the Word of God every single day. Because if you're not in the Word of God, I could tell you anything. And you'd believe it. 
But if you're in the Word of God, then if I slip up, you're up here as soon as I stop preaching. Hey, wait a second. Uh, Psalms 23 says, just using that as an example, I want you guys to be a people that really look like Christians, that look like Jesus Christ. We've had historical figures. Everybody knows who Mahatma Gandhi is, right? That statement, that haunting statement, I love your Christ, but I hate your Christians. There should be no difference. But we have missed it. We're just like the religious elect that Jesus talked about. We're just like the ones who do good with our words and do good with our actions, but our heart's far from Him. So I'm just challenging you. And I don't have to pull out individual sins. I don't have to pull out individual issues because not everything that keeps you from God is a sin. Sometimes it's a good thing. When I was wanting to date Faith and she was playing hard to get, playing nothing, yeah. When she was, when she was temporarily beyond my reach, so to speak, I never let that become an idol to me. I never let that take up all my thoughts and all my time. I still maintain my devotion time. But the reason that I'm saying that is because if I was in that situation where I was desiring a good thing, I was desiring faith because I wanted a wife. He that finds a wife finds a good thing. All the husbands say amen. But, or should say amen. Y'all are all getting in trouble after this. <laughs> uh, except me. <laughs> anyway, um, when I was desiring that, that relationship, and I was already in love with her. I'm not even, I mean, I'm, I'm earning brownie points up here, guys. But when I was pursuing that, if that would have taken precedence in my life, then that's a promise from God. But if it would have taken precedence, if it would have taken the top spot, if it would have somehow affected or hindered or destroyed my pursuit of God, then I would have been an idolatry. Meaning I would have been making faith a God. And that would have been sin. Even though she's good, she's in Christ, the relationship would have been good. The marriage would have been good. All of those things. But if I was making that top spot, it would have been sin. It would have been idolatry. It would have removed God out of the equation. Even though it was a godly covenant, it was a godly desire, it would have removed God out of the equation. The same thing's true with ministry. And I'm using these because they're my examples, so now you can't say that I'm talking specifically about your life, because I'm not. My whole life, quote-unquote, since being a Christian, I've desired one thing, to be a minister of the Gospel. I've had people talk to me and say, I want so-and-so's mantle because that's a thing in Pentecostal circles and I've always been like, I don't care about somebody's mantle. I just want to minister the Gospel for Jesus. That's all I want. But if I would have ever turned that ministry into the focus, if I would have looked at all the pragmatic and program-centered and, you know, practical things and just been like, if I do this, 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 and this, then I can get into ministry. And if I would have taken God out of the equation and not waited on Him, because I had to go through some crap times to get here. I mean, 
the two and a half years at Lazy Boy, man, I hated that. That was miserable. But I knew that I had to do that to honor a promise that God said that Faith would be able to stay home with the kids. And so I, in turn, had to be the provider of the family because he that don't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. I had to do that so I couldn't violate that to pursue the ministry. I couldn't disobey God on one hand to try to please God on the other hand. But if I would have turned to ministry and let it take primary place, it would have been sin. Even if I was preaching the Word, glorifying Jesus' name with the ministry, the ministry itself would have been founded in sin because it wouldn't have been on God's time. It would have been on my time. Even today, right now, I'm a pastor. And I love that with everything that I have. I love you guys. All of you. And all the ones that aren't here, sleeping in, even though they got an extra hour. Um, but if... I would take that and I'd be at the church seven days a week and I'd never do anything with my kids and when I got home I'd be in a book or be in the Bible. All those are good things but if I neglect her, if I neglect my children, then my ministry is a sin. Even though the ministry is great, it's become a sin to me because it's become an idol. If I allow the ministry and my study for preaching, my study to be a pastor, destroy my personal devotion, then it's become sin. The point I'm saying is there's a lot of things in our lives that are hindering the Spirit of the Lord from taking over. And it's not a bad thing when the Spirit of the Lord takes over. It's the best possible thing. I mean, joy unending, unspeakable and full of glory, peace that passes all understanding, love that can't even be explained or comprehended. I mean, those are beautiful things. There is no ecstasy out there available that can comprehend or even remotely touch the feeling and the joy that's in the presence of the Lord. Nothing out there even comes close. And I've done every drug in the book. I've done the whole alcohol phase and drunk till you can't stand and you don't even remember a day or two at a time. I've done that phase. I've done the whole physical aspect of it and the womanizing and the violence and the money and all. The, I've done all of it. And it doesn't even come close. It doesn't even come close. Even if I had to stop preaching and put down ministry and go work a job that I hated and somebody offered to let me go back to my sinful life and negate the whole thing, lose your mind. No way. No way. Somebody offered me all the riches in the world to be a dealer again. No way. No way. doesn't even come close. doesn't even come close. Listen, when I got saved, I'm going way off track here and I don't care. When I got saved... The day after I got saved, phone rang, answered it. And the guy literally told me this. I will pay you $1,000 on top of the price for the cocaine if you will drive to Chattanooga and pick this up and drive it to Oak Ridge. That's all you got to do. And I would have made $1,000 a couple hours of time. And I had nothing. I said no. Because I had just experienced something that went so far beyond what money can do. 
just experienced something that went so far beyond what ex, uh, ecstasy could do, something that went so far beyond the euphoria of drugs, something that just went so far beyond that I was like, I will never in my life do anything that would ever even remotely come close to hindering that. And that's what I want for you guys. I want you guys to come into contact, to draw near to the presence of God that is so real, that is so tangible. See, Pentecostals, and I know because that's my background, they're all about, oh yeah, let's speak in tongues, let's do this, let's raise our hands, let's run around the church, all that stuff, cool, fine, whatever. But there is something that's so much more. There's something about when you feel the presence of God descend upon a sanctuary that even babies won't open their mouth and make a sound because the presence of God is so tangible. I know because I've been there. I've been there where literally we've seen that top of this room become smoke because the presence of God is so real. And I don't care if you think that's crazy because I witnessed it with my eyes not once, not twice, but multiple times where the presence of God was so real that there were two and three year olds because this church was so little bitty it didn't have a nursery. They were running around the sanctuary and when this started happening, they sat down on the floor and didn't make a sound that was so holy, that was so weighted that you could literally feel the air and move your hand. It was like the air was butter and you was cutting through it. I can't explain it, but it was something so deep, so much more than what we want in our artificial, I want to see it with my eyes. I want to run and jump and holler. That's great. Whatever. Do you. You do you, boo. <laughs> I want God. And I think you do too. So right now, what we're going to do, because this is a communion service, Faith is putting some music on. We're going to do two things simultaneously, and it's going to be awesome. Number one, Mike, Dewey, I need you guys. So here's what we're going to do. The Scripture, the verse, is prepare the way of the Lord. Simple. You can memorize that. Prepare the way of the Lord. In your own heart, when Paul gives the exhortation about taking communion, he says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. And make sure you don't take the communion unworthily and there's a whole good exhortation, 1 Corinthians 11, look it up. But what he's saying is, examine yourselves, judge yourselves that you won't be judged. Right now, as we take communion, as we get ready to take communion, when you're coming up, when you're waiting to come up, after you get it and you're waiting for everybody to get the elements of communion, just close your eyes, not while you're walking, I don't want a disaster to happen, but close your eyes when you get back in front of your seat and really examine. Say, God, is there anything in my life that is preventing me from drawing near, that is preventing you from getting all of me? All right, so we're going to start on the right side. You guys come up in the middle section, and we'll come up and get the elements. I probably should have told them to get it in their hands first. <laughs> I'm just... I know I'm all out of whack. I'm just excited because I feel like God is going to do something here in this place to this group of people. And I feel like all we have to do is just be real. Not be Christians in name only. Not be Christians that look good to the outside. Let's get a little undignified. Let's get a little outside the system. And the second thing that we're going to do as we're doing this, as soon as we take communion, we're going to have just a moment of prayer. And I want anyone that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or maybe you think you have, 
but you're realizing now that you've never surrendered to Him. You're realizing now that I've never really given God all of me. I want to extend the opportunity that after we take communion, I want to extend the opportunity for you to give it all. For you to give it all to the Lord because you'll receive so much more in return.